A hero is someone who makes the world a better place. And if you're an RN, LPN, mental health clinician, or counselor, then you're already a hero because you value wellness, treatment of disease, and prevention of illness. So why not dedicate your next career move to a place where heroes make a difference every day? The Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Join a team where you can offer empathy and opportunity by just being who you are, a hero. Visit hcsoma.org or just Google the Hamden County Sheriff's Office and join a team where being a hero is a daily occurrence. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. To be a transformational leader and coach, you must deeply understand what you are transforming. The real test of leadership isn't what you do. It's what you inspire others to do. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to bring to light the people and programs, both inside and outside the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, and the stigmas that are carried forward, and of course, stories that prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. While prepping for this week's show, we realized that we hadn't yet shared the legal side of corrections and all the various intricacies of the prosecution model, a model that should, and in Massachusetts is, aligned with building safer communities. And to help us understand the prosecution model, crime prevention, law enforcement partnerships, and community collaborations, is District Attorney David Sullivan the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for Hampshire and Franklin Counties in Massachusetts and the town of Athol, and a definite legal eagle who's hustling to bring change to the communities he serves. Welcome, D.A. Sullivan, to The Hustler Files. Well, thanks for having me, Lisa. So can I call you David? Yes. Okay, good. Before we get going into all the different subjects we're going to and topics we're going to talk about today, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Well, I'm a, a graduate at the University of Mass Amherst. Uh, I actually grew up in Eastern Mass in, in Framingham, but uh, went to UMass undergrad. And then uh, about three years later, I went to Northeastern Law School in Boston. And uh, after Northeastern, I had a job uh, representing Army and Air Force personnel over in West Germany. So it kind of dates me. I'm before the Berlin Wall. So uh, <laughs> before it fell, let's put it that way. And then when I came back to Massachusetts, uh, I relocated back to a place that I loved as a, a student. And um, so I've been practicing law oh, out here since uh, 1989 as both a general practitioner uh, with a concentration in uh, criminal law. I did a lot of uh, bar advocate, both in Holyoke, Springfield, and Northampton, uh, as well as Ware. So I did that for a full 10 years. And then later on, I ran for office to be the Register of Probate, which is the Chief Administrator for Probate and Family Court. And uh, 12 and a half years ago, uh, I took the plunge and came back into criminal law and was elected the uh, district attorney for Hampshire, Franklin Counties, and the town of Athol out of Worcester County. 
You have quite a storied biography, and if I was reading it online, it would take us the whole show to go through everything that you have done. But I think the best way to summarize what you do and what you've done for the communities out here is that you've embraced a community prosecution model that blends smart and fair prosecutions, crime prevention, law enforcement partnerships, and community collaboration to build safer communities. Give us sort of an overview of of how that comes into play because they don't seem to match when you think about law enforcement and then community collaborations. They seem to, from the old days, they go against each other. They actually complement each other, and I'll explain why. When you have a community, the community keeps people safe, those relationships, those things that work. And that includes not just working with the police, but also social services, making sure that you get to the, the roots of many crime problems are addiction, poverty, things that have to be worked out on a community level that I have no control over. But working together with communities, and particularly Franklin and Hampshire, just by the nature of the resources, they're, they're rural, suburban, filled with colleges, which you know we know we have six colleges, both the community college and our five college, uh, UMass, and the other private schools, that we have to work together because we never have enough resources. So we work with a number of community groups, whether it's working with the, the local youth drug prevention programs, working with Community Action, which is the anti-poverty agency, is it's work on those collaborations. So the most recent grant that we received was a twofold grant. One was to do crime ends of things, drug interdiction with drug trafficking, but the grant also gave a substantial amount of money to the Athol YMCA to work with kids in programming, at-risk kids, kids that are disadvantaged. These are the things that build communities, and I think build safe communities. So overall, we have two of the the lowest crime rates uh, in our counties, and I think a lot has to do with the civility that's nurtured uh, through schools and families. I'm a big supporter of families and children. If you support a child when they're younger, it's going to make a huge difference down the road. So we want to do as much as we can up front, and that's why with both our adults and our juveniles, we do diversion programs. We want to get them out of the justice system, have accountability, but at the same time, work with trusted adults, whether it's in a community setting, doing community service, or working with our diversion officers, particularly with addictions. We, we try to take people right out of that adult system and make sure that they get the help they need. You know, I was a defense attorney for 16 years. I know that addiction is such an issue but getting treatment and having recovery and really working on those things to keep them out of the criminal justice system is so important. Absolutely. And we talk about that all the time on the Hustler Files. So there's multiple levels of jurisdictions in the legal system. Um, you have Superior Court, District Court, and then, as you mentioned earlier, Juvenile. How do you differentiate the three when it comes to someone who's committed a crime? So for the juveniles, it's uh, Massachusetts, it's those that are 17 and under. And that system is designed to be rehabilitative, to, to look at that youth and to say, how do we change the... Uh, to trajectory of that person's life. And that's a tall task if a kid's coming from a, uh, maybe a, a, a family that has had domestic violence or has had addiction issues, but they, they want to serve that individual and look out for the best interests of the child. So 
our office uh, works with the local probation department, with the, the police departments, to come up with plans and, and with the, the court's approval for how can we change this kid's uh, life? Can, can we get them counseling? Can we get them treatment for a substance use disorder? And also have accountability, whether it's community service, writing a letter of apology. So we want to make sure that the youth, as you might say, has a teachable moment and moves on. So sometimes most youth, uh, be honest with you, 90% of the time, one and done. They get involved, and they're no longer in the criminal ju- justice or the juvenile justice system. And how long does that record, though, stay with them? Well, first of all, through our diversion program, they never even have a record. So it's they've never been arraigned. They've moved on. So there's no record. It's uh, it's dismissed. So there's no criminal record. There's record of it, but if it was reported to uh, say an employer, it would show nothing. So that's under that's 17 and under. Yeah, 17 and under, and so. Juvenile records um, in the juvenile system is very private. It's for that reason that you keep that confidentiality so that in a community they don't get that stigma of a conviction. So that's really important for that youth rehabilitation. So that say that young person uh, was out their junior year of high school, knocked over 20 mailboxes. Well, you know, we're going to treat that person for what they did, who they are, but we don't want them labeled. So, you know, the community should know, at least through newspaper articles or anything else, who that juvenile is. And that's really across the country that the juvenile system is a private and closed system for those rehabilitative purposes. So other states are following that model? Yeah, it's, it's been the model. And Massachusetts was the uh, the first one to have probation. So it goes back you know, to the 1900s is, hey, this is how we want to treat people. We don't want to put them in jail but we'll have them on probation with a probation officer that will guide their programming. And for our diversion, we have a diversion specialist that just specializes in youth and does evaluations and really kind of sets them on the right course. So how do you decide which crime from 17 and under is worth going through the diversion program or it's worth sending them to another rehabilitative program somewhere else? Well, part of it is, uh, does the youth have uh, a significant record or not? So if they've committed maybe one or two offenses, we we see that as just a sign of youth and and we were able to turn things around. Uh, The level of crime, if it's a serious felony, such as an aggravated assault with a weapon or it was a a forcible rape, that would not be treated through diversion. But I'd say a good 95% of the, the things that happen with use, you know, whether it's vandalism, disorderly conduct, uh, simple assault, you know, those can be handled through diversion. And we felt that it's been very successful to have that person and have that one-on-one with our diversion specialists. So it's a task that we really want to do. It's not something we're forced to do because every diversion program, there's diversion programs in every district attorney's office in Massachusetts, and everyone has a different flavor. And so ours, I think, is designed in a good way that we use counseling, referrals, but even for a problematic sexual behavior that maybe there was something that happened with uh, a child in the family, we want to use that as a diversion model as well. And we have a very successful program that we work with a nonprofit. It's called No Fires, where juvenile fire setters, kids that were experimenting with fires or maybe they were in a bar and they they lit a fire, Uh, we work with them in an extensive way. And probably about 50 to 75 kids a year go through that program. So that's a really important program that we have. We established about 10 years ago, and it helps address those child. It could be experimentation. It could be something going on in their lives, but we want to address that early on. And I think the recidivism rate, I think out of maybe 400 kids, maybe three have reoffended. So it's a really successful program. 
So what brings to mind is we have these conversations on the show with so many social workers and people who are frontline workers in this space. And everyone always talks about the trauma factor, right? Growing up with trauma as being part of the issues with, you know, addiction and and other things. But also that, especially in in young men, that they really don't stop growing until they're 26 years old, emotionally and mentally. So when you have a diversion program that only treats to 17, should it not also have an arm of that program that goes to 26? Because the researchers are saying 26 is sort of that, that next tier. Well, we take that into consideration, and I think what you're talking about is ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, and those that happen in youth, um, and as a whole grid, there's 10 significant events that can help happen in a child's life. For example, a parent goes to, uh, is incarcerated, uh, there's a divorce in the family, there's drug addiction. Those adverse childhood experiences will last a lifetime, but maybe on a reduced level if they get the right counseling and they get the right help at the right time. So the the ones that are 18 to 25, uh, they're still treated in the adult court, but we also look at, hey, what's going on in that person's life? And it's up to the defense attorney to fill in the blanks many times for us, you know, as to what their trajectory was uh, in their youth. So that's really important. And we work with defense attorneys in a very, very good way because we want that information so we can make a, a, a just decision about their outcome. I mean, so much about sentencing is it's an unjust sentence because the judge didn't get the full flavor of who this individual was. So every case is treated individually. There's no cookie cutter justice, in my opinion, as you have to look at it as an individual. But the more that you know about a defendant and where they were and where they want to go and, and how do they want to change their lives. And, you know, one of the things is we work with uh, um, over 3,000 victims in our office every year. And we also want to take care of the justice for them. At the same time, we don't want this defendant, this offender, to reoffend because that's, our, that's the goal. I'd say if anything I can do in a criminal case to change things is that they don't reoffend, they don't re-victimize individuals. So I think the more that you put into those resources and try to help that person early on, the better. Because I think front-loading is the important part in the justice system. It's easy to put somebody in jail, uh, maybe a little bit more difficult in our jurisdiction, but it's a simple request. Maybe the judge goes along with it, but you don't want it to be simple. We have sentencing guidelines. Jail or prison is a last resort, a last resort. And on that note, because I now have a very long list of questions for DA David Sullivan when we return, because we've got to take a quick break. Listeners, grab another cup of coffee. We'll be right back. You're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. Under the leadership of Sheriff Patrick Kayleen, the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office offers medication-assisted treatment for those struggling with opioid addictions. This is Mindy Cady, Director of Medication for Opioid Use Disorders. We want you all to know that we provide community-based support and referral services with our partners at the Northampton and Ware Recovery Centers. If you or someone you know is living with alcohol or drug addiction or just simply needs some direction, we are here and we're happy to help. Stop by or find us at HampshireSheriffs.com. 
Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and we're here having our first ever conversation about the legal side of law enforcement with District Attorney David Sullivan, who is the Chief Law Enforcement Officer for Hampshire and Franklin Counties in Massachusetts and the town of Athol. I want to move into the other types of jurisdictions. So there's also district and superior courts, correct? Could you define the two for us? So district court is the point of entry in Massachusetts. That's where 99% of all the offenders would be arraigned. In other words, their charges would be read, they'd be, you know, bail would be set. And that is limited to two and a half years in the House of Corrections. So you can't be punished by more than two and a half years for a particular offense. The more serious felonies go to superior court, and that's where you need a grand jury to look at that event that happened, that incident, and determine whether they should be indicted, and then they're arraigned in superior court. And of course, the punishment in superior court could be from zero up to life without parole if it was a first-degree murder. In our county, we have, I have two counties, so I have two superior courts. And I have four district courts that are spread around my geographic area. And are there different judges for each of those six courts? Yes, they're appointed by the governor, you know, after screening and the whole process. So they're selected for district court, just handle those district court cases. And then there's a separate selection process that would select uh, superior court judges. So every county's different. We know this. Every state is different. And I'm sure every judge is different. And so as the DA, when you kind of you oversee all this, do you look at each individual case and say to your subordinates, well, you know, this case might do better based on this person's history if they sat in front of XYZ judge, or is it really just based on where they did the crime? Where they committed the crime is that jurisdiction. So in other words, for a small town in eastern Hampshire, there's a district court that would handle that. It's located in, in Belchertown. But the judges are just, you know, you have a usually a presiding justice, and then you have a visiting judge. It's just who, who sits that day. And they're a little bit different, you know, in their philosophy uh, toward crime or punishment. But for the most part, they're pretty consistent. And there's some standard dispositions, say for a first time operating after the influence if the person wants to, you know, take responsibility, they're given a continuation without a finding and 45-day loss of license, and then they have to do the drunk driving class that's, you know, 40-plus weeks. So things are pretty consistent on the district court level. They don't really vary that much. You know. So when you mentioned two and a half years House of Corrections, so we know from Hamden and Hampshire and Franklin counties and working with them and having their guests on the show that their maxes are typically about two and a half years. Does that fall into that House of Corrections? Because I always think of that now after having so many conversations, that that's the local jail level. And then there's a lot more rehabilitation and reentry programs. And I think of House of Corrections as being more the Department of Corrections within the state where it's like MCI Shirley. Right. So we have two uh, houses of correction, the Franklin House of Corrections in jail. Jail is where they held on bail. And then the Hampshire. And both sheriffs are very progressive. They have very good programs for substance use disorders. Actually, both of them have methadone and buprenorphine, which is very unusual in our criminal justice system. And Franklin, they were the first ones in the nation to have methadone as a method of treatment. Both sheriffs kind of, if I can quote them, say 75 to 80% of the folks that are 
in the House of Corrections have either a substance use disorder or a mental health issue or both. So that's a really important thing is that they get the, the treatment for their substance use disorder while they're in jail and they can work on those. And then when they leave, they have a treatment protocol that they can leave with. And we've shared that over and over and we will continue to do that because that is such a high level conversation that always needs to be talked about. So what are some of the mandatory minimums in the state of Massachusetts? Well, you, you start with the most serious of crimes, which is murder. So first degree murder would be life without parole. Second degree would be life with parole after a certain period of time. Now, you know, you can set 15 or 20 years or 25, depending on what the judge does with that particular offense. And then there's manslaughter. And that doesn't have a minimum mandatory. But then you have things that involve guns and weapons that are unregistered, illegal guns that bring different things depending on whether they're loaded, whether they're used in a crime. Say it was a bank robbery while being armed, then that would be a minimum mandatory or while being masked. You also have you know, child abuse. So say an offender was 25 and victimized a 11-year-old in a child abuse case, there would be a minimum mandatory for the five-year differential. Most crimes are not minimum mandatories, but the most serious ones are. And of course, you have the drug cases. It depends on the quantity of the drugs. In Massachusetts, it's, you know, say cocaine or heroin would be up to 36 grams. That wouldn't be minimum mandatory, but you'd also have 36 to 100 grams and 100 to 200, and that in excess of 200 would bring certain minimum mandatories. But a prosecutor doesn't have to recommend. They can reduce those crimes. They can reduce it maybe, uh, for example, say somebody had 205 grams. They could reduce it to the next level or the level below. You don't have to give that minimum mandatory. You can figure out how you want to you know, structure the degree of responsibility, but also the degree of accountability. So many moving parts. I don't know how you keep track of them I, I, all. <laughs> I, 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 have very, I have very good prosecutors and staff, and particularly my victim witness advocates. They, they help victims all the way through from start to finish. Because both from a defendant point of view and also a victim point of view, people don't know the system. They don't know what to expect. They're nervous. Anxiety really hits people. So uh, it's really important to have our victim witness advocates and obviously for a defendant to have a good defense attorney that explains the system to them and what they're going to expect to see. So that segues me to two questions. The first being, how do you approach a situation where the crime that happened came from the person who was the actually the victim? Because it happens a lot, especially in domestic abuse cases, right? You have someone who's just been abused, 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 and finally they just lose it and they pull a gun out or a knife or whatever. So they're not only being charged with whatever the charge is, whether it's murder or manslaughter or whatever, but they're also been the victim for so long. So how do you balance that? Well, it's a, it's a tough balance because you have to determine, you know, whether this was uh, something that was triggered by post-traumatic stress, you know, and do they have a defense? I mean, the defense attorney should raise that. And, you know, PTSD is a defense in a domestic violence uh, case. But then again, you just have to separate it too. Let's just say that that woman just says, hey, listen, on this day, I'm just going to go after him or her without any prior threat. But you have to determine case by case who's the victim. And for those cases, sometimes we have to uh, recuse ourselves. We have to ask another prosecutor's office to handle that particular case if in the course of it, they're both the victim and the defendant. So, you know, if it happens one and the same, you can't represent, you can't prosecute 
both. You'd have to ask another prosecutor's office to handle those things. But again, our folks that are in victim witness program, they know who these victims are. And if they came on the screen as being a defendant, they'd certainly let the prosecutor know. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a lot of mitigation that would uh, be involved in that, you know, and the use of force, you know. So we're going to run out of time, sadly, and I could talk to you for hours about this. So I'm sure we'll have you back. So I ask every one of my guests a final question and um, don't give them the heads up to it. So we get a very transparent and honest answer. I believe that we all have life assignments and they can change as we get older, or they can be the same life assignment. At this point in your career, in your life, what do you think your life assignment is? To help people, to really help people. And it, it's both the victims of crime, defendants, but also the community. I mean, I, I love my communities here, 47 cities and towns, and, and everyone's special to me. So I just hope that I have the health and strength to keep moving on and, and working toward good programs that, that help everybody. That's wonderful. And uh, we will send lots of good wishes your way so you can continue to do what you've been doing for so long. And a big thank you again to District Attorney David Sullivan for joining us today. Thank you, Lisa. And we have to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with the rest of the Hustler Files, so sit tight. Did you know the Franklin County Sheriff's Office has programs to support our seniors? This is Sheriff Chris Donnelly. Our triad unit provides free medical equipment to senior citizens who need help staying in their homes. This could mean the difference between going home after rehab or into a nursing home. Our incarcerated men at the Franklin County Jail work to repair and maintain donated wheelchairs, scooters, walkers, and hospital beds that we then make available to seniors for free. Just another service our Sheriff's Office is proud to provide for you and your family. We are back. And this week's thoughts come from Brene Brown, Braving the Wilderness. Stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that you don't belong. You will always find it because you've made that your mission. Stop scouring people's faces for evidence that you're not enough. You'll always find it because you've made that your goal. True belonging and self-worth are not goods. We don't negotiate their value with the world. The truth about who we are lives in our hearts. Our call to courage is to protect our wild heart against constant evaluation, especially our own. No one belongs here more than you. And that's another wrap on The Hustler Files for this week. Thank you all for joining us. And I continue to hope that the storytelling and education around prison reform and criminal justice activates change, maybe not just with you, but with the people you share these shows with. And hopefully we'll carry it forward. I want to thank our guests and advertisers for their continuing support. You can always find all of our shows on the WHMP.com podcast page or any of your favorite podcasts sites. I want you to all have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files.
The Sheriff's Shuffle 5K Run Walk is back, and this year it raises funds to support Sheriff Nick Kochi's Youth Leadership Academy. Want to learn more? Listen up. What's the Youth Leadership Academy? The Youth Leadership Academy is a summer day camp that provides Western Mass youth ages 7 through 12 positive role models and life experiences for those who can't afford a traditional camp experience. This year, 120 children participated. Who pays for the Youth Leadership Academy? All expenses are covered by donations, like the Sheriff's Shuffle. So when is the Sheriff's Shuffle? It's Sunday, October 15th. And where is it? It's at the Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke. And what time should I be there? Registration starts at 8 a.m. The race begins at 10.30 a.m. How much is it? It's only $35 to pre-register. Where can I sign up? Google HamdenCountySheriff.org and click on the link. Hey, where are you going? I'm going to sign up for the Sheriff's Shuffle. See you there. You became an RN, LPN, mental health clinician, counselor, or recovery professional because you believe in the value of wellness, treatment of disease, and prevention of illness. And that also means that you have the right stuff to join the medical and mental health care team at the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Making the world a better place takes a village, and even more so with justice-involved individuals. So why not consider dedicating your next career move to changing countless lives for the better? Visit hcsoma.org. That's hcsoma.org to join the team today.